Chapter Forty Eight of Science in Short Chapters. Recorded by Mickey Lee Rich. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Science in Short Chapters by W. Matthew Williams. Chapter Forty Eight. Home Gardens for Smoky Towns, Part One. The poetical philanthropists of the Shepherd and Shepherdess School, if any still remain, may find abundant material for their doleful denunciations of modern civilization on journeying among the housetops by any of our overground metropolitan and suburban railways, and contemplating therefrom the panorama presented by a rapid succession of London backyards. The sandy Sahara and the saline deserts of Central Asia are bright and breezy, rural and cheerful, compared with these foul, soot-smeared, lumber-strewn areas of desolation. The object of this paper is to propose a remedy for these metropolitan measle-spots by converting them into gardens, and shall afford both pleasure and profit to all concerned. A very obvious mode of doing this would be to cover them with glass, and thus convert them into winter gardens or conservatories. The cost of this, at once, places it beyond practical reach. But even if the cost were disregarded, as it might be in some instances, such covering in would not be permissible on sanitary grounds. For, doleful and dreary as they are, the backyards of London perform one very important and necessary function. They act as ventilation shafts between the house-backs of the more densely populated neighborhoods. At one time, I thought of proposing the establishment of horticulture home missions for promoting the decimation of flower-pot shrubs in the metropolis, and of showing how much the atmosphere of London would be improved if every London family had one little sweet briar bush, a lavender plant, or a hardy heliotrope to each of its members, so that a couple of million of such ozone generators should breathe their sweetness into the dank and dead atmospheres of the denser central regions of London. A little practical experience of the difficulty of growing a clean cabbage or maintaining alive any sort of shrub in the midst of our soot drizzle satisfied me that the mission would fail, even though the sweet briars were given away by the district visitors for these simple, hardy plants perish in a mid-London atmosphere unless their leaves are periodically sponged and syringed to wash away the soot particles that otherwise close their stomata and suffocate the plant. It is this deposit that stunts or destroys all our London vegetation, with the exception of those trees which, like the plains, have a deciduous bark and cuticle some simple and inexpensive means of protecting vegetation from london soot are therefore most desirable when the midland institute commenced its existence in temporary buildings in cannon street birmingham in eighteen fifty four i was compelled to ventilate my classrooms by temporary devices one of which was to throw open the existing windows and protect the students from the heavy blast of entering air by straining it through a strong gauze-like fabric stretched over the opening after a short time the tammy became useless for its intended purpose its interstices were choked with a deposit of carbon on examining this i found that the black deposit was all on the outside showing that a filtration of the air had occurred 
even when the tammy was replaced by perforated zinc puttied into the window frames in the place of glass panes it was found necessary to frequently wash the zinc in order to keep the perforations open the recollection of this experience suggests that if a gauze-like fabric cheaper and stronger than the tammy can be attained and a sort of greenhouse made with it in the place of glass the problem of converting london backyards into gardens might be solved after some inquiries and failures in the trial of various cheap fabrics i found one that is all ready to be had and well adapted to the purpose it is called wall canvas or scrim is retailed at three and a half pence per yard and is one yard wide if i am rightly informed it may be bought in wholesale quantities at about two and a quarter pence per square yard an example one farthing per square foot this fabric is made of coarse unbleached thread yarn very strong and open in structure the light passes so freely through it that when hung before a window the loss of light in the room is barely perceptible when a piece is stretched upon a frame a printed placard or even a newspaper may be read through it the yarn being loosely spun fine fluffy filaments stand out and bar the interstices against the passage of even very minute carbonaceous particles these filaments may be seen by holding it up to the light the fabric being one yard wide and of any length required all that is needed for a roof or side walls is a skeleton made of lines or runs of quartering at three feet distance from each other the cost of such quartering made of pitch pine the best material for outside work is under one penny per foot run of common white deal about three farthings Thus, the cost of material for a roof, say a lean-to, from a wall-top to the side of a house, which will be the most commonly demanded form of 30 feet by 10 feet, i.e. 300 square feet, would be 110 feet of quartering, 11 lengths at 1 pence, that's 9 shillings, 2 pence, 300 square feet of canvas at 1 and a quarter, that's 6 shillings, 3 pence, and for nails and tacks say one shilling totaling sixteen shillings five pence the size of the quartering proposed is two and a half by one and a quarter inch which laid edgewise would bear the weight of a man on a plank while nailing down the canvas the canvas has a stout cord-like edge or selvage that holds the nails well i find that what are called french tacks are well suited for nailing it down they are made of wire well pointed have a good-sized flat clout heads, and are very cheap. They are incomparably superior to the ordinary rubbish sold as ten-tacks or cut-tacks. The construction of such a conservatory is so simple that any industrious artisan or clerk with any mechanical ingenuity could, with the aid of a boy, do it all himself. No special skill is required for any part of the work, and no other tools than a rule, a saw, and a hammer side posts and stronger in rails would in some cases be demanded i have not been able to fairly carry out this project inasmuch as i reside in twickenham beyond the reach of the black showers of london soot i have however made some investigations relative to the climate which results from such enclosure this was done by covering a small skeleton frame with a canvas putting it upon the ground over some cabbage plants etc and placing registering thermometers on the ground inside and in similar position around the frame 
Also, by removing the glass cover of a cucumber frame and replacing it by a frame of which the canvas is stretched. I planted 300 cabbages in November last, in rows on the open ground, and placed the canvas-covered frame over 18 of them. At the present date, March 15th, only 26 of the 282 outside plants are visible above the ground. All the rest have been cut off by the severe frost. Under the frame, all are flourishing. I find that the difference between the maximum and the minimum temperature varies with the condition of the sky. In cloudy weather, the difference between the inside and the outside rarely exceeds 2 degrees Fahrenheit, and occasionally there is no difference. In clear weather, the difference is considerable. During the day, the outside thermometer registers from 4 or 5 to 7 or 8 degrees above that within the screen during the sunshine. At night, the minimum thermometers show a difference which in one case reached 14 degrees, i.e. between 23rd and 24th February, when the lowest temperatures I have observed was reached. The outside thermometer then fell to 8 degrees Fahrenheit, the inside to 22. On the night of the 24th and 25th, they registered 15.5 degrees outside, 25.5 degrees inside. On other or ordinary clear frosty nights, with east and north and northeast winds, the difference has ranged between 4 degrees and 6 degrees, usually within a fraction of the average 5. The uniformity of this during the recent bright frosty nights followed by warm sunny days has been very remarkable, so much so that I think I may venture to state that 5 degrees may be expected as the general protecting effect of a covering of such canvas from the mischievous action of our spring frosts which are due to nocturnal radiation into free space. Thus, we obtain a climate, the mean of which would be about the same as outside, but subject to far less variation. How will this affect the growth of plants desirable to cultivate in the Provost Canvas Conservatories? In the first place, we must not expect the results obtainable under glass, which by freely transmitting the bright solar rays and absorbing or resisting the passage of the obscure rays from the heated soil produces during sunshine a tropical climate here in our latitudes. We may therefore at once set aside any expectation of rearing exotic plants of any kind, even our native and acclimated plants, which require the maximum heat of English sunshine, are not likely to flourish. On the other hand, all those which demand moderate protection from sudden frosts, especially from spring frosts, and which flourish when we have a long mild spring and summer, are likely to be reared with especial success. This includes nearly all of our table vegetables, our salads, kitchen herbs, and British fruits, all of our British and many exotic ferns, and, I believe, most of our out-of-door plants, both wild and cultivated. As the subject of ornamental flowers is a very large one, and one with the cultivation of which I have very little practical acquaintance, I will pass it over but must simply indicate that, in respect of ferns, the canvas enclosure offers a combination of most desirable conditions, the slight shade, the comparatively uniform temperature, and the moderated exhalation are just those of a luxuriant fern dingle. 
Respecting the useful or economic products, I can speak with more confidence, that being my special department in our family or home gardening, which as physical discipline, I have always conducted myself with a minimum of professional aid. My experience of a small garden leads me to give first place to salads. A yard square of rich soil, well managed, will yield a handsome and delicious weekly dish of salad nearly all year round, and at the same rate, seven or eight square yards will supply a daily dish including lettuces, endives, radishes, spring onions, mustard, and various kinds of cress, and fancy salads, all in a state of freshness otherwise unattainable by the Londoner. My only difficulty has arisen from irregularity of supply. From the small area allowed for salads, I have been oversupplied in July, August, and September, and reduced to indoor or frame-grown mustard and cress during the winter. With the equable insular climate obtainable under the canvas, this difficulty will be greatly diminished. And besides this, most of the salads are improved by partial shade, lettuces and endives more blanched and delicate than when exposed to scorching sun, radishes less fibrous mustard, cress, etc., milder in flavor and more succulent. The multitude of savory kitchen herbs that are so sadly neglected in English cookery, especially in the food of the town artisan and clerk, all, with scarcely an exception, demand an equable climate and protection from our destructive spring frosts. These occupy very little space, less even than salads, and are wanted in such small quantities at a time, and so frequently that the hard-working housewife commonly neglects them altogether. Rather than fetch them from the greengrocers in their exorbitantly small pennyworths, if she could step into their backyard and gather her parsley, sage, thyme, winter savory, mint, marjoram, bay leaf, rosemary, etc., the dinner would become far more savory, and the demand for the alcoholic substitutes for relishing food proportionably diminished. My strongest anticipations, however, lie in the direction of common fruits, apples, pears, cherries, plums of all kinds, peaches, nectarines, gooseberries, currants, raspberries, strawberries, etc. The most luxuriant growth of cherries, currants, gooseberries, and raspberries I have ever seen in any part of the world that I have visited is where they might be least expected, viz. Norway. Not the south of Norway merely, but more particularly in the valleys that slope from the 500 square miles of the perpetual ice desert of the Gestadal down to the Sonjafjord, latitude 61 degrees to 61.5 degrees, considerably to the north of the northernmost of the Shetland Islands. The cherry and currant trees are marvelous there. In the garden of one of the farm stations, Sanday, I counted seventy fine bunches of red currants growing on six inches of one of the overladen downhanging stems of a currant bush. Cherries are served for dessert by simply breaking off a small branch of the tree and bringing it to the table, the fruit almost as many as the leaves. This luxuriance I attribute to two causes. First, that in that part of Norway the winter breaks up suddenly at about the beginning of June, and not until then when night frosts are no longer possible do the blossoms appear it was on the twenty fourth august that i counted the seventy bunches of ripe currants 
The second cause is the absence of sparrows and other destructive small birds that devour our currants for the seed's sake before they ripen and our cherries immediately upon ripening. These are preceded by the bullfinches that feed on the tender hearts of the buds of most of our fruit trees. Those who believe the newspaper myths which represent such thick-billed birds eating caterpillars should make observations and experiments for themselves as I have done. In our canvas conservatories, neither sparrows, nor caterpillars, nor wasps, or other fruit-stealers will penetrate, nor will the spring frost nip the blossoms that open out in April. All the conditions for full bearing are there fulfilled, and the ripening season, though not so intense, will be prolonged. We shall have an insular Jersey climate in London, where the mean temperature is higher than in the country around, and if I am not quite deluded, we shall be able to grow the choicest Jersey pears, those that best ripen by hanging on the tree until the end of December, and fine peaches, which are commonly destroyed by putting forth their blossoms so early. All the hundred and one varieties of plums and damsons, greengages, etc., that can grow in temperature climates will be similarly protected from the frosts that kill their early blossoms, and the birds and the wasps that will not give them time to ripen slowly. I have little doubt that if my project is carried out, any London householder, whether rich or poor, may indulge in delicious desserts of rich fruit all grown on the sites of their own now dirty and desolate backyards, that if prizes be given for the most prolific branches of cherry and plum trees, gooseberry and currant bushes, the gardens of the Seven Dials and of classic St. Giles may carry off some of the gold medals, and that, by judicious economy of space and proper pruning of the trees, the canvas conservatories may be made not only to serve as orchard houses, but also to grow the salads, kitchen herbs, and green vegetables for cookery under the fruit trees or close around their stems. End of chapter 48 Read by Mickey Lee Rich